Well, good morning and welcome to the Mount. My name is Adam. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say good morning to everyone here at the Stafford campus. Those of you joining us for our online campus, also down at Fredericksburg. We are so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, Maybe you have heard the saying that there are two kinds of people in the world. Anyone ever heard that before? Just a show of hands. And usually at the end of that sentence, you fill in with the options. In fact, it's such a popular saying that there's a book that's been written called Two Kinds of People. And this book is actually quite interesting. it just has different pictures and you have to decide, am I that person or that person? And you're supposed to take this quiz with your significant other, your fiance, your roommate, your, your spouse, whatever. And at the end of it, it gives you a compatibility rating all the way from mortal enemies to soulmates. And so... There's a lot in between, but uh, I love this book because it does kind of capture the dichotomy that we see in the world. Let me just give you a couple examples of this up on the screen up here. There are those that pour the milk into the cereal and then the psychopaths who put the cereal into the milk. We're not gonna have you raise your hand because we don't wanna embarrass you guys and put shame on you for being so strange. But obviously there are two kinds of people, normal and not normal, right? Uh, There's another example for you here. There are those that... Yep, here we go. This is where marriages break up right here. So uh, there's those that put the toilet paper the wrong way and those that put it over, right? So, uh, you know, I I actually, I was told this morning that uh, if you own a cat, you're supposed to put it under like that. That way when the cat goes to play with it, it doesn't make a mess. I think that's just an excuse for how psychotic you are, but okay. So uh, another option for us here to look at is we've got people who don't clear any of their notifications, and then the normal people who clear all their notifications, right? So uh, just a moment of transparency and confession here. My wife is on that far end over there. She doesn't clear her notifications. She probably has like 5,000 emails right now. In fact, she doesn't clear them that's bad enough that I had somebody call me recently and say, hey, I tried to leave your wife a voicemail, but her mailbox was full. And so I go in and clear out her mailbox. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? It's just going to get full again of messages she never, ever checks. So uh, and one more just to kind of show the example for us here. One more we can see there's those that, uh, you know, set one alarm and those that need multiple and snoozes and all of those kind of things. And so obviously in society, there are two types of people. And this dichotomy we use quite a bit, right? There are people who are dog people and there are people who are cat people. There's not very many of them, right? There are people who are extroverted and people who are introverted. There are people who during the fall love pumpkin spice everything and they want everything to smell like pumpkin spice. And there are those of us that are sick and tired of pumpkin spice and want nothing to do with it ever again. There are those who follow the rules and those who don't follow the rules. I have a couple of those living in my house, right? There are two types of people. There, when it comes to our political affiliations, there is you know, Republican and Democrat, conservative and somewhat liberal and whatever it is. There's, there's two types of people in the world. And this permeates much of our society. Even as we get closer to Christmas time, we're gonna be celebrating and talking about a guy who separates people into the naughty and the nice and puts them on a list based on whether they are good or bad. But that's what we do in society. We label people good people, and bad people. We label it from when we're kids. We tell our kids, stranger danger, those are bad people. That person's your grandma, she's a nice person, right? We, we label good people and bad people. My son, Micah, our youngest, we, he loves to watch movies and we watch the Avengers movies and the different ones and the, the Marvel superheroes. And every time one of them comes on, no matter what's happening, when a character shows up, he always asks, dad, is that a bad person? Is that a good, he wants to know, do I cheer for this person in the fight or do I not? And he's just wanting to know, is it a good person or a bad guy? Who do I cheer for? 
for many of us, if we haven't grown up in church and we're attending for the first time or maybe just kind of getting our feet wet into the church world and the Christian faith, we can sometimes view God this way, right? There, when it comes to God, there are good people and bad people. There are holy people and unholy people. There are sinful people and good people. There are obedient people and the disobedient people. In our world, we create these dichotomies. There are two kinds of people. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're gonna continue with week two of our series, There's More to the Story. And for those of you, while you're turning to Luke chapter 18, for those of you that are maybe joining us for the first time or the, the first time in a while, just so we're all on the same page, we are in week two of a series where we are looking at the stories that Jesus told. And for those of you that remember Jesus, we said last week that of all the things he taught, of all the things that he preached, and, and all of his three years of doing public ministry, over a third of everything he taught and said was done in story form. For Jesus, stories were how he communicated. It was how he connected his teaching to people. And his stories over the years have been told as what we call parables. And a parable is a fancy word that we use simply to describe his stories. And this terrible, a parable at its kind of simplest form is really just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And remember we said last week that when Jesus is speaking, when he's teaching, when he's telling his stories, he's talking to a specific audience in a specific context and a specific place and time in history, a first century Jewish person living in Palestine. And so when he says his stories, he would tell earthly stories that they immediately would resonate with, that they immediately would connect with, that they would hear and say, yes, I get it, I understand it. But then he would take that story and add more to it. He would tell them there's more to it and it would be a eternal, a heavenly, a significant meaning to come later. The story we're gonna look at today, Jesus does just this. Just like last week, he says there are two kinds of people. In Luke chapter 18, we see this starting in verse 10. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. So Jesus begins this story by saying there's two kinds of people who are going to pray today. There's the Pharisee, and the tax collector. Now remember, context matters. For a first century Jewish person hearing this story, living in and all throughout Israel, they would have immediately recognized the two characters in this story. They would have immediately said, yes, Jesus, we get it. You're telling us there are two kinds of people. There is a good person and a bad person. Because they knew, based on their, their history, based on their culture, based on their language, that the Pharisee and the tax collector, one of them was good and one of them was bad. And so they immediately connected to Jesus, saying there are two kinds of people that went to the temple to pray this day. One was good and one was bad. Let's look at the good guy first. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. That I'm not like those, those robbers, those, those evildoers, those adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. For I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I get. Now, for those of us that have, that have been around church for any amount of time or have grown up in church, we've become accustomed to the language of the Pharisees. We've become sort of indoctrinated with thousands of years of interpretive history where when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately say, oh, these are the hypocrites. We have language to talk about it. We say, don't be so Pharisaical, right? We, we tell people, hopefully you don't say that to your spouse or anything, but we tell people, don't be so Pharisaical. Don't be such a hypocrite. Don't be somebody who says something but does something else. Because we 
have heard thousands of years of teaching and read scripture and seen what Jesus has to say about all of these people. We, we've been trained to recognize that the Pharisees are not good guys. So, some churches, even when they're in their kids' ministry and they have the kids and they're, they're telling stories like this, they'll be like, okay, kids, we're gonna talk about a Pharisee and a tax collector today. Every time you hear the word Pharisee, I want you to boo and hiss really loud, right? And so they tell the story and the kids are interacting and they're, they're teaching us that the Pharisee is just a bad, bad guy. But to a Jewish person hearing this story when Jesus tells it, that's not what they would have thought. They would have not had all of the, the history and the language that we have for the past 2,000 years. Yes, there were, there were some Pharisees in their times that were bad. There were some Pharisees in their time that were hypocritical and Jesus confronted them. We see in scripture where he, he calls them out. He says, you, you brood of vipers and you, you hypocrites. And he talks about their whitewashed tombs and all of these different things. But for the most part, in general, you can say that the Pharisees as a group of people were good people. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a, a specific religious sect, a specific religious kind of subgroup within Judaism. There were several different ones, but the Pharisees were sort of the elite of the elite. They were the ones that everyone wanted to be. They were the ones that were the most holy. They were the ones that were the, the most righteous. They were the ones that were the most good, the most perfect in the way they lived. Their concern, unlike some of the other kind of subsects of Judaism, their concern was with making sure that they and God's people upheld the letter of the law to the minute detail. They desired more than anything for God's people to be faithful to his commands. They said, God has revealed through the law of Moses and all of the prophets of the Old Testament how he wants us to live and why as people would we not live the way he wants us to live. There's nothing wrong with what they wanted. They desired for people to be obedient to their loving and gracious father who provided a set of rules and guidelines for them to live by. They were so elite that at any given time in Jewish history, there was never allowed to be more than about 2,000 of them. They were considered the best of the best when it came to following the law. Of all the Jewish leaders in the first century, they would have been the most respected, considered the most righteous. The way they taught on worship or prayer or giving or all the different areas of Jewish culture, people would have said they are shaping the culture of Jewish life more than any other religious leaders of our time. They are the ones we wanna listen to, we wanna follow, we wanna know about. They stood for purity. They stood for faithfulness to God's commands. Above and beyond anything else, what they longed for was the nation of Israel to be obedient and to follow the Lord and not drift. They were the guys that wanted to bring everyone back to the old ways, the good old days, the way it used to be. They wanted people to follow God and obey. They stood for strong families and strong churches and strong neighborhoods and strong schools. They were respected. They were the people in the community that everyone wanted to live next to. They were the most faithful synagogue attenders. They would have been leaders they would have been the people that everyone wanted on their boards. They would have been the people that when you moved into a new neighborhood and you found out a Pharisee was living next door, you were celebrating and fist pumping. You were so nervous and excited to invite them over for some bread. It were the people you wanted to live next to. Most Jewish mothers would have given anything to have their son grow up to be a Pharisee. They were the moral, clean living, conservative, godly people of their day. And what does Jesus tell us this Pharisee does? It says he stands by himself and prays. He, he goes up to the temple, right? He, he goes to this place where all of these other people are worshiping, all of these other people are praying, and he stands by himself and prays. 
Now, this would have been totally normal for a Jewish person to see. In fact, if he wasn't standing at the temple and praying, something would have been wrong because there were certain hours of prayer where the Jewish people would go and gather near the temple and pray. And if you would have seen a Pharisee walking in the street during that time, you would have said, whoa, 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 what is this holy, righteous man not doing praying when everyone else should be praying? It was normal for him to be there at this time and praying. And not only that, it says he stands by himself because he's a good guy. He doesn't, you know, get in the middle of the crowd and and stand on a high stool and boast loudly. He's not publicly proclaiming his prayers. He's not letting everyone know what he's doing. No, no, he stands by himself and prays. In fact, most scholars would say that if you saw a Pharisee standing by himself and praying, you would either go over to them or you would say, hey, Pharisee, hey, guy, come over here and pray near us because you wanted to hear what it was they were praying because they were so respected. They were so intelligent. They were so brilliant in their good holiness and following the law. But we're not told that. We're told this guy shows up to the temple and stands by himself and prays. He's not boasting. He's not bragging. He's just praying by himself. And what does he pray? Look at verse 11 again, verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like those other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even this tax collector. For I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. I mean, this guy is basically saying, God, like, I thank you that I don't sin like that. I'm thankful that your grace, your, your goodness, your, your law is so apparent in my life that I am able to go through life and not fall into the same traps and temptations as the people around me. God, I'm thankful. He doesn't start with a position of himself. He says, I'm thankful to you, God. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Why? Because he had every right to do this because he was doing that. He was following the commands. He was living the good life. He was clean. He was holy. He was pure. He is thanking God for the life that God has allowed him to live in his obedience. And the content of his prayer is even more interesting. He basically says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these less holy, sinful people. Now, Before we jump to conclusions and are like, dude, this Pharisee's judging those people. Uh, Pause for a second, okay? Listen, listen. Yes, it sort of sounds like that, but that's not really the case. What he is praying is something that would have been completely acceptable and completely normal during his time. We see prayers like this in the Old Testament. We see David, when David's crying out in some of the Psalms, and you can go and read them for yourself, where David says, I thank you, Lord, as I meditate on your word that I'm not like those who don't and, and ignore it. God, I'm thankful that I am faithful to obedience in you and not like the people who are fools and unwise. Even David in his moments of prayer is thanking God for what God is doing in and through his obedience and righteous living despite what he sees in other people. This would have been perfectly normal for a Pharisee. There's a famous prayer from, 80, from 70 AD by a rabbi when he writes it down and it sort of captures what a Pharisee might say. I wanna read you this prayer and this was about 40 years after this story. He says, I rise early and they rise early, but I rise early for words of Torah or the law or scripture, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor, but I labor and receive a reward and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run and they run, but I run to the future world and they run to the pit of destruction. This would have been normal expected and we look at this and we remember we're, we're 2,000 years removed and we say, well, still though, they're judging. And just pause for a second. 
I think we do this all the time. Like I, I think in my own life, and if I'm just having a moment of transparency and confessing this to you guys, there are moments in my life where I'm scrolling through a news feed and I see a story about a pastor at a larger church and he's somehow you know, losing his position of authority, losing his position at the church because of moral failure. And my gut instinct is to immediately say, God, thank you that I'm not like that. I hear stories of people whose marriage is crumbling and a husband made a mistake and a bad choice and it led to the destruction of their family. And I hear those stories and my gut sometimes just says, God, thank you that I would never do that. I think we all do this. We're not, we're not publicly proclaiming it from stage, right? We're not shouting it when we drive through the car like around the city, no, no, but we say it in our minds because there is something about us where we are thankful at times that God has sustained us, that God has blessed our obedience, that he has allowed us to come through and not been sinful like the other people who made the mistakes. We do this quite regularly. Then he goes on to list some things he does. He says he, he fasts twice a week and he gives a, a tenth of everything, not just what he earns. This would have been, again, above and beyond what the law required. The law required fasting one day a year on the day of atonement. But the Pharisees as a group, not this individual, but as a group, they chose to fast twice a week for good, holy, righteous reasons. They fasted so that they could spend extra time praying for the salvation and deliverance of the nation of Israel. And then he says, I give a tenth of everything. Not just, not just the things I earn, but if I go to the store and I buy a book, whatever that book costs me, I give a tenth of that back in case that person didn't. He wants to make sure that what belongs to God goes to God. All the Pharisees did this. It wasn't unique to him. And here's, here's what's interesting about this. is Jesus never says this guy was a hypocrite. Like, like, there are plenty of times where he, he calls out specific Pharisees for their hypocriticalness or all these, but he never says this guy was a hypocrite. And we're led to believe that this guy, when Jesus tells this story, this Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray by himself and the things he says, they are sincere things that he actually is someone who is thankful that he is not like those people because he is obedient. He is thankful that he is not sinful because he is holy and righteous and clean. He is thankful that he is obedient to following what God has for him. And for a first century Jewish person living in Jerusalem and during this time, when Jesus told this story, they would have said, yes, man, that's a good guy. That is, that is an incredibly holy, upstanding, moral citizen who's following God. His righteousness is something I long for. His goodness is something I want. I want my kids to be just like that guy. If my family, my husband, my spouse, if everyone in my sphere of influence could be like that guy, my world would be so much better because that guy is a good guy. There are two kinds of people in the world, good people and bad people. Jesus goes on to the bad person next, verse 13, he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collectors, many, many of you know this, but just so we're on the same page, tax collectors were notoriously bad people in first century Palestine. In fact, they were just kind of known to be these, these horribly wicked person. And everyone hearing Jesus' story, when they heard that, oh, a tax collector went up to the temple to pray, immediately they would have thought, whoa, whoa, tax collectors don't go to the temple. They're too dirty. They're too sinful. They're, they're too bad. They, they would never be there. That's not where they belong. Why? Because he's a traitor. 
He's an extortionist. You see, a tax collector, uh, in essence, what they would do is they would be a Jewish citizen and Rome had invaded and occupied the land of Israel. And as a Jewish citizen, they would go to the Roman government and they would make bids to, to, to be the person who got to collect the taxes that Rome collected from the people of Israel. This might be a road tax, it might be a toll tax, it might be a bridge tax, it might be sales tax, inheritance tax, the list could go on and on and on. But they would make these bids and say, I will collect this tax for this rate, this kind of thing. And then Rome would kind of divvy out the bids and they would sign, okay, you're now the tax collector, your job is to collect this. So immediately as a Jewish person, you would say this person is now collecting money not to go to the temple where it belongs because all of everything we have as Jewish people belongs to the Lord and we're supposed to give to him. No, no, no. Now it's going to an evil empire that lives across the sea. It's going to Rome. This guy is a traitor. He's a sellout for Rome. But above and beyond that, what a tax collector would do in order to gain money and gain influence, he was allowed to skim off the top. And so what he would say is he would say, hey, in order to use this road, it's three pennies. I'm going to charge everyone who uses this road five pennies, and I'm going to keep two pennies myself. And he was allowed to do this. It was encouraged by Rome. And so you saw these tax collectors who every year, every six months, every five years, they would continue to raise and raise the rate, and they would just bleed their own countrymen dry of money just so they could give to Rome and get rich themselves. They were hated. People said, they are crooks. They are stealing from us. They were the no good, money-grubbing, cheating Roman collaborators. They were not loved, they were despised. When a tax collector would walk down the street, people would cross the street and walk to the other side because they didn't want to be near them. They were the lowlife, the criminals, the outcast. They were classified the same with murderers and robbers. They were so despised that some of the early Jewish teaching tells us that you don't even have to tell the truth to a tax collector. You're allowed to lie to them. You're allowed to break the commandments of God in the way that you deal with them. Jesus says this tax collector, this, this bad guy, shows up to the temple to pray. And what does he do? Jesus says he shows up to the temple to pray and he stands at a distance. He doesn't stand in the middle of the crowd with all the other clean, holy, good people. He doesn't go right up next to the altar where the priest can see him, where he can be in the presence of God. No, no, no. He recognizes that I'm filthy and I'm dirty. He stands at a distance. And every Jewish person hearing this story would have said, yes, that's where he belongs. He's unclean. He's sinful. He is not righteous. He is a bad, bad person. He doesn't deserve to be in our temple with us. He doesn't deserve to be near God's presence. He deserves to be at a distance, way over there, off in the corner by himself. And when he shows up to pray, even his posture, the, the common Jewish prayer posture would have been standing with your hands up like this, looking up to heaven, looking up to your father. But we're told that this guy stands like this and puts his head down and his hands like this and he lowers his face and he begins to beat his chest, which is something a woman would do when she was in anguish. He's downcast, he's ashamed, he is embarrassed, he's frustrated, he knows I'm gonna stand at a distance because I'm not worthy to be here, I'm not good enough to be here, I'm not clean enough to be here, and I'm embarrassed to even look up to God and the people around me. And then he prays, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in the original language, it's fascinating, that phrase is not a sinner, but the sinner. 
And scholars could debate, maybe he's, he's saying he's the chief sinner of all, but most scholars would say, no, no, no. What he's saying is he's, he's, he's acknowledging the nickname that all the Jewish people would call him. When he's walking down the street, they'd be like, oh, here comes the sinner. Here comes the sinner. And so he says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. His entire identity is now that. He says, I'm no good. I'm a sinner. And then Jesus continues, verse 14, right? And everyone would say, yeah, there's two types of people at the temple praying. There's the bad guy and the good guy. We get this. Jesus continues, verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, the, the tax collector, rather than the other, not, not, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' audience would have been shocked they would have immediately been like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't think so, bro. You're wrong. That's not how the story works. You can't tell me that there's a good guy and a bad guy in a story and the bad guy is the one that's justified. No, 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 no. That guy is a sinful thief. He steals, he lies, he cheats, he's an extortionist. He does all these things. And over here on this side is this good guy, this guy that everyone wants to be like, this guy that is living a righteous, moral, clean, holy life. That's the good guy. That's the guy that goes home justified, Jesus. Your story is wrong. Why? Because in Jewish culture at the time, there were two kinds of people, the good and the bad, the obedient and the disobedient, the clean and the dirty, the holy and the sinful, the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus says, yeah, there are two kinds of people, but they're not good and bad. They're proud and humble. Jesus says, yeah, 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 you're right. There are two kinds of people in the world, but it's not the kind of people you thought. It's, it's the proud people and the humble people. What is a proud person? A proud person is someone who trusts in themselves. A proud person is, is fascinated with themselves. They, they think that they have done things, all, all the, their own goodness, all the things that they've done in life, all of their, their merit, all of their righteousness, all of their obedient living, it's because of them and it's their power and their strength. Therefore, they think that they are the one who has earned it. They are the one that made them right with society and right with God. Go back to the beginning of the parable, verse nine. We didn't read this, but look who Jesus tells the parable to in verse nine. He says, to make or to some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He, he's a, the, the Pharisee was a proud man. He thought his goodness, his righteousness, his obedient, holy, faithful living is what made him who he was because he did it. He worked at it. He earned it. He tried hard enough. And therefore, because of that, he was allowed to look down on other people. And we say, whoa, whoa, Pharisee, that's harsh. No, I would never do that. We do all the time. You see, there's, there's something about us as human beings where we're, there are these moments in our lives, and if we're honest, I think there's a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us. We have these areas of our lives where we think that we have done something that makes us good, when those areas are where we end up looking down on other people. The thing that we think makes us right in this world or right before God is the very thing that we judge other people for, and it shows where our pride is. Let me give you some examples. If we think 
that we are made right with the world and right with God because of our behavior, then we will judge other people when their behavior is not the same as ours. We will say, how could they do that? I can't believe they would do that. What's wrong with them? If we think that our political affiliation is what makes us right with others and right with God, then we will be annoyed and frustrated and judge everyone whose political idea is different than ours. If we think that our parenting style, the way we raise our kids is what makes us right with God and right with others because we, we chose homeschool over public school or private school, or whatever it was, then we will judge and look down on everyone who does the opposite or a different way than we do. Why? Because it's in those moments where we find ourselves judging other people is where we find a pride in who we think we are. Question for you this morning. Where are you finding your pride? What is the thing that you find yourself judging other people for? That you find yourself saying, man, I just don't understand why they would do that. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. That makes no sense. Are they, are they an idiot? What are they doing? Why are they so dumb? I just don't get it. Like, it makes total sense. Why wouldn't they just do this? Where is the thing that you find yourself constantly judging and evaluating other people? I would just tell you nine times out of 10, that's the very same place that you are so prideful because you think that your behavior or your attitude in that area is what makes you right and good in the world and with God. There are two kinds of people, the proud and the humble. The proud look to themselves, the humble look to Jesus. Take a look at the prayer that the tax collector said. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I, I love this prayer. It's, it's one, of the, one of the shortest prayers in scripture, but it's like incredibly profound. Just a couple things. First, the, a humble person, we see this prayer, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And a humble person sees themselves in the lens of who God is. Look at his prayer. Look at the beginning of it. It starts with God and it ends with me. In essence, what this prayer is saying is he's saying, listen, like for most of us, for the majority, for the proud person, for the Pharisee, he held up a mirror to himself and said, man, I look good. Me, I look good. Or he looked out to everyone else in the world and said, compared to them, I look good. Because when we compare ourselves to others, we will always find people who are worse than us, who are less than us, who are disobedient or are not as faithful, not as good at following God than us. But when this guy, this, 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 this tax collector, he says, when I start with me and I stop looking at the the people around me and I look to God, what I find is that I am nothing in compared to him. We see him turn his gaze and he says, God, in your holiness, in your goodness, in your miraculous faithfulness to humanity, in the way that you provide and watch over and care for everyone, every day, all the time, in the way that you are faithful and loving and kind and generous over and over and over and over and over again, in all of your goodness, I pale in comparison to you. We see this in the Old Testament with a prophet by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah has this vision where he sees the Lord. Just, just listen to this. He says, he says, verse one, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And here's how he says, he says, I saw him high and exalted. He was seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim or angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. What were they saying when he saw them? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah says, man, I, I had this vision, and I was over here, and me, me was over here, and I looked, and I saw God, and all of his glory, and all of his splendor, and there was smoke, and thunder, and lightning, and shaking, and there was angels spinning around, and there was all of this, and people are crying, holy, holy, holy. And he says, when I saw this, when I saw the grandness, the goodness, the faithfulness of God, what was his response in verse 5? He says, woe to me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah sees how good God is, he realizes how much he pales in comparison. We see this by a guy by the name of Job, Habakkuk, Peter, we see it in John, the, the apostle John, when he sees Jesus in his glorified form and his only response is to fall flat on his face and lay down because he is so unworthy in his presence. You see, when we recognize how holy God is and how truly sinful and broken we are, we recognize that there is this huge gap in the middle, this huge expanse of space. And I love I love the prayer of this tax collector because he sees who God is and he knows who he is. And what does he say? What does he, what does he put in that gap? He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, that phrase, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna nerd out for just a second. So just, just go with me here. That phrase, have mercy on me. It's actually one word in Greek, and it points to the Old Testament word, which refers to the mercy seat that was part of the, uh, the Old Covenant. The mercy seat, and so the, the literal translation of this passage when he says, God, have mercy on me, would be God, be mercy seated towards me, right? The idea of being mercy seated towards me. What does that mean? What is the mercy seat? For those of you that are, are Bible scholars, you'll understand this. For those of us that aren't, uh, just a recap. The mercy seat was, uh, in the Old Testament times, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was the place where it, it it resided in the Holy of Holies, and it was the place where the Israelites had put the tablets, the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, right? You're tracking with me? They put them into this Ark of the Covenant, and it was the place where uh, there was this lid on it, and then there was these seraphim angels that would set on top of it, and it was the place where God's law dwelt, where the place where his word was stored, and it was in the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed to go into there except one time of year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go in, and he would tie a rope to himself so that if he died and passed out, they could drag him back out, and so he would go in, and what happen is 364 days of the year when God would rest on those seraphim, when he would rest on that seat and he would look down towards the earth, the first thing he would see is the law. And he would see man's inability to uphold the law. He would see their faithlessness, right? Are you tracking with me? He would look down and he would say, I see this perfected law and I see how short they are in living up to it. Their failures, their shortcomings. But one time a year, when the high priest would slaughter an animal and he would take that blood in and he would pour that blood over the Ark of the Covenant right there, over the mercy seat, when God would look down, he wouldn't see the law and man's inability. He would see the blood that was sacrificed for them and given for them so that they would be redeemed. And so here, this tax collector shows up at the temple and he says, God, be mercy seated towards me. When you see me, don't see my inability to live up to your standards. Don't see my failures. Don't see my imperfections. 
don't see my mistakes, but see the blood that covers me and redeems me and makes me new. He says, God, be mercy seated towards me. And Jesus says, this is the one who goes home justified. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says he goes home justified? First, it means he goes home and all of his sins are gone. He's no longer the guy who's known as stealing. Not only does he go home and all of his sins are gone, but he goes home and all of Jesus's righteousness, all of Jesus's goodness, all of Jesus's holiness is imputed or given to him to live out as if he had never done a sin in the first place. Let me make it really practical for you here. It's as if this guy, when he says, God, be mercy seated towards me. When you look at me, don't see my failures. Instead, see the blood of Jesus that covers my sacrifice. And when you see that, he says, then I will go home, not as a guy who's been stealing. I will go home as a guy who's never stolen stolen before from any of my people, but not only that, I will go home and God's generousness will be imputed to me and I will live as if I was someone who was generous from the very beginning of all of my days. He not only is forgiven, but he takes on the new identity that is in Jesus. Hebrews 10 says it this way, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Day after day, every priest stands to perform his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There are two types of people in the world. There are the humble and the proud. When God looks at those that follow Jesus, when we acknowledge that left to our own, we are not good enough, we are not righteous enough, we are not holy enough, we are not clean enough. When we look to Jesus as our sacrifice who takes our place, God looks at us and says, guess what? He's justified. She's clean. He's mine. He's good. Listen. That is the message of the Christian faith. That the proud man who thinks I can be moral enough, I can be good enough, and I can be right enough, goes home and is not. But the one who simply says, I am unable, Jesus, cover me. And when God sees me, he doesn't see my failures anymore, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus living through me. There are two types of people in the world. There are those that are humble and those that are proud. Those who are proud look at themselves and those who are humble look at Jesus. What type of person do you want to be? That's the core of this story. He's saying, where are you going to get eternal life? yourself or God. And the danger for those of us that that follow Jesus and have been following him for a long time is the more we follow Jesus, the more it is to easily slip into the behavior where we think I am good because of what I do. 
No, no, no. We have to fight the temptation every single day that says, I am not made right because of what I do. I am not made good because of what I do. I am made right. I am made good. I am made clean. I am made holy, whatever words you want to use, because the blood of Jesus is sacrificed and covers for me. And when God looks down from his mercy seat, he doesn't see my failure. Instead, he sees Jesus in my place and his righteousness is put against me. And for those of us that don't follow Jesus, maybe you came here this morning and you're like, man, I just came to check things out. Listen to me, that's awesome. We are incredibly glad you are here and we love you enough to tell you that Jesus covers your mistakes. Jesus covers your past. Jesus covers your present. Jesus covers your future. And you can try all you want, but you will never be good enough to earn your way into heaven because it's only when you step back like the tax collector and recognize and plead to God, God, be mercy seated towards me. Will you find him? Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you sent your son to die for us so many years ago. God, we are thankful from the beginning all the way back in Genesis, you were working out a plan for our redemption, for our rescue, because you longed to be with your people for eternity. God, this morning we confess that there are times in our life where the Pharisee in us rises to the surface and we think that we are good because we are good. God, we acknowledge this morning that we are not good because we are good. We are good because you are good. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. As we continue praying in this moment right here for all of our campuses, as we keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Adam, that's me, man. If I'm being honest, I am trying to be this good person on my own. I'm just doing the right things, hoping I get enough good credits where, I, where when I die, I have 51% of a good life and 49% of a bad life so that God will allow me to whatever's next. And I just wanna tell you, it's useless and pointless because that's not how it works. Jesus is the answer. He died for you, for your past, your present, and your future. And maybe this morning for the first time in your life, you need to cry out to him like that tax collector did and say, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Just at all of our campuses, if that's you, if you for the first time in your life wanna surrender your will to Jesus, would you just raise up your hand right where you are? If your hand's up at any of our campuses, uh, we've got a group of prayer people who will come around and they'll give you a card for you to be able to kind of take those next steps. If you're joining us online, you can click the little emoji that has a hand raised or you can ask for a prayer request right there as well. We would love to follow up with you. For the rest of us, we're gonna move into a time of worship. And I just wanna tell you this, for all of our campuses, our our prayer team is there. Uh, If you wanna kind of, as we worship, if you wanna reflect on the goodness of God and the grace that he offers, if you wanna take a moment and acknowledge that there are pharisaical moments in your life that are rising up and you wanna lay them down, we just wanna offer this space for you to worship and pray and to drop down on your knees or sing loud or whatever you wanna do. Let's stand and respond.